When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Thank you, Cynthia, for reading this morning. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Well, I got up yesterday, uh, or this morning, rather, and I just really didn't know what to expect. Um, after my wife was watching the weather last night and seeing what it was going to do, uh, she told me this morning as I left the house, uh, please be careful as you're driving. And then I pull out of our neighborhood, and I'm sure it wasn't like this for everybody, but I pull out of our neighborhood this morning, and there wasn't a, a lick of snow anywhere on anything that was paved. I looked at sidewalks. I looked at parking lots. I didn't see snow anywhere. So I'm so glad that you braved the elements to get out here this morning, especially knowing, as most of you did, I assume, that I was going to be the one speaking. That's even more special because I sent out that message this week to Church Center. You have the Church Center app on your phone, right? And so if you do, you should have gotten a message to that effect. And if you don't, then I'm sorry for the disappointment. Pastor Lynn's not here this morning, but I, I believe he's watching from home, uh, which can't, looks like that camera's live right there. So everybody look at that camera and wave and say, hey, Pastor Lynn. That was terrible. All right. All right, whatever. Anyway. So um, I, I made sure that there was an acceptable outline in your worship guide this morning. The last time I spoke, I, I, I got a little bit behind the week before, so Linda always puts that stuff together in the worship guide on Thursdays. I didn't quite have it ready for her to go on Thursday, so I said, just, just put lines in there. But I didn't want to do that to you again because Nate G Gohagen, I don't see if they're here this morning, but Nate... Nate came up to me after the service and he said, I, I know that you didn't put any fill in the blanks in the worship guide, so I wanted to show you the notes that I, that I came up with. Oh, we're talking about service with a smile this morning. We'll get, get to that in a second. Show you the notes that, that I can. Can we put that on the big screen so people can? That's the wrong one. There we go. Look at that. That's insane. Man, I was, a, I was afraid that people were going to have cramps in their hands from writing, so... I made sure that you had an acceptable outline this morning. Service with a smile is what we're talking about from John chapter 13. Now, if you're, if you're astute, maybe if you're a student of the Bible, you'll recognize that the scripture that was read this morning is not John chapter 13. That was Matthew chapter 25, but they're very closely related. And so we're going 
I'm going to run through this really, really fast. The team this morning has already razzed me mercilessly about how many slides there are, so I'm just warning you, reach uh, around the seat beside you, grab the seatbelt, buckle it, because we're about to take off and go about 90 miles an hour to get to the end of this thing. John chapter 13, if you want to follow along with me, that's where we're going to be. Before we jump into the scripture, though, I want to give you a little bit of background into the gospel. The word gospel just means good news. Of the book of John, it wasn't written as a book, it was just written as a letter, kind of a long letter um, to believers. But John wrote it for a specific purpose at a specific time and a specific place. This wasn't a figment of his imagination, it wasn't made up. And so it's useful for us, especially for our discussion this morning, to know a little bit of background. Here are some things that you should know. This was written by John in the 8090s. That's our best guess. It was written in the 8090s, which makes it the last of the four Gospels to be written. Maybe you know that there are four Gospels in the New Testament. This was the last one that was written down. It was written about events that occurred around A.D. 30. So it was written about 60 years after the events that are recorded in it. Now, a little bit of Bible trivia there, but it will become useful later. Uh, it contains zero parables. Now, some of you might not know what a parable is. It's just a spiritual, it's just a physical story that makes a spiritual point. A physical story that makes a spiritual point. Now, almost all the Gospels contain many, many parables because Jesus liked to tell stories. He was a masterful storyteller. But this, this gospel is unique because it contains none, no parables whatsoever. And it contains only seven miracles. The other gospels contain more. This one only contains seven because John was writing for a very specific point and purpose. And that point, that purpose was to prove who Jesus is and what Jesus offers. He wrote to prove who Jesus is and what Jesus offers. And we know this not because we can infer it from what John wrote, but because John very graciously told us exactly why he was writing. In John chapter 20, he said that the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. So he wrote seven miracles. He said Jesus did a lot more. The disciples saw them, but these are written. I wrote these down for you, John, saying, so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So, so John wrote for a very specific purpose. We're going to get to that in just a second. But before we do, I want to back up because we're going to talk a lot this morning about these guys, the disciples. Now, in this context, these disciples were Jesus' 12 closest friends. But in general, what is a disciple? Disciple is not a word that we use outside of the context of church very much at all. You never uh, walk up to somebody and shake their hand and say, have you met my disciples? Or where were you last discipling? Or where are you, where are you and your family going to go discipling on vacation this year? Nobody says stuff like that. We just don't use that word unless you're around church. In the Bible, the word disciple just means a student or a follower. Uh, Pastor Linz mentioned that many times. Pastor Todd mentioned it last week. But it's worth retelling because I don't want anybody to be confused about who Jesus is talking to or who he's talking about. So back to our points about the book of John, written in the 90s about events that occurred in the 30s, has no parables and only seven miracles. And it was written for a very specific purpose. And as John told us in the book, it gives, which was 
to uh, prove that Jesus is the Messiah and what he offers to us. And last thing that you need to know is that it gives special attention to Thomas. Even people who aren't churchgoers, who've never been around church, know a little something about Thomas. We call him blank Thomas. What's the word that goes there? Doubting. Sure. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. So it gives special attention to Thomas and it gives special attention to Peter. And one of the things that Peter is famous for is because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied knowing him three times to a bunch of nobodies, people who couldn't even do anything about it. He just denied knowing Jesus three times. Jesus told him that it was going to happen. Sure enough, it happened. John gives special emphasis in his gospel, more than the other gospel writers, to Thomas the doubter and to Peter the denier. Now, into our having all of that as background, it's going to come in handy. Knowing all of that, let's jump into our text this morning, John chapter 13. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, some son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that his Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God, and that he would return to God. Now, there are at least four things in these few verses, these first three verses of the uh, 13th chapter of John, that John points out that Jesus knew. Why did he point out Jesus knew this and this and this and this and this? Well, that will become clear as John tells us the story. John is setting himself, he's setting this story up with the stuff that Jesus knew. It's kind of the backstory, what's going on. So real quickly, here are the four things. They are blanks in your worship guide. I know that some of you won't be able to sleep tonight unless you fill in those blanks. So here we go. Here's the first set of blanks. Here's what Jesus knew. Number one, Jesus knew what he must do. And you find that in verse one, what he must do. Remember, we, we just read this in verse one. It says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world. He had to leave. Jesus knew it. I got to go. That was the reason for which he came. He came to die and to leave. What was the second thing? Jesus knew what he could do. He knew what he must do. He also knew what he could do. And you'll find that in verse 3. John tells us, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. Jesus knew what he could do. He could do anything he wanted to do. He had all power. He had all authority. That's part of the Great Commission, Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 28. He could do anything. Not only did Jesus know what he must do, not only did Jesus know what he could do, Jesus also knew who and whose he was, who he was and who he belonged to. That's in both verses, one and three. Look at this. It says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his father. He knew who his father was. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God. He knew where he had come from. He knew who he belonged to. And John mentions that because later on it's going to be important. And then, not only did he know what he must do, what he could do, who and whose he was, he also knew where he was going. Not just that he had to leave, but he knew exactly where he was going. And again, John points this out in both verses, verse 1 and verse 3. 
Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to return to his father. He knew that he had to go back. Jesus knew that he would return to God. So John points out these four things that set up this story that he's going to tell, this account, this true thing that happened. Knowing all that, knowing all of that, what he must do, what he could do, who he was, whose he was, and where he was going, Jesus did the unthinkable. He washed his disciples' feet. What's so unthinkable about that? Well, in that culture, people didn't wear closed-toed shoes like most of us have on this morning. They wore sandals or what we might think of as flip-flops, and they didn't have paved roads. They walked around in the dirt all day long, and so their feet were disgusting. Jesus wasn't just some hired hand. He was the master of this celebration. He was the host, and the host never, ever, 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 ever washed the guest's feet. That was the role of a servant or a slave. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe it's the first time you've ever thought about it. But that was the role of a servant or a slave or maybe even uh, the person who owned the house where this event was taking place. This wasn't Jesus' home. It wasn't one of the disciples' homes. It was a borrowed home. And so it would have just made sense for the person who owned the home to have a servant whose job it was to wash people's feet. So I wonder, did Jesus maybe say to the servant goes to do it and Jesus said, no, I got this. Or Now, that's not recorded for us in the Bible what happened. We don't know. Maybe it happened that way. Maybe it didn't. The point is that Jesus did what was unthinkable for anyone in his position in that culture. He washed the feet of his students, his pupils, his followers. He got up from the table. He took off his robe. Now, that's going to become important in just a few minutes, so I want you to remember that he took off his robe, not everything, just his robe, his outer garment. He wrapped a towel around his waist, he poured water into a basin, then Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. So Jesus does this thing that nobody in his position would ever have deigned to do. Jesus did the unthinkable. He washed his disciples' feet. Peter you know any, anything at all about Peter, Peter did what was very usual, very typical for Peter. Peter protested with what I will call false humility, false humility. And Pastor Lynn's talked to you about that before. And you can find that in verses 6 to 8 of the same chapter. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You going to wash my, you talking to me? You're going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing. But someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never, ever wash my feet. Was Peter the first disciple that Jesus came to? Probably not. Was he the last one? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Doesn't really matter. He wasn't the only one. There were a bunch of people sitting around that table. And all of them, apparently, because we're not told otherwise, all of them allowed this thing to happen. They allowed Jesus to wash their feet. And then Jesus comes to Peter. Peter looks around at all the other guys. He thinks to himself, well, you guys are a bunch of losers. Maybe you are going to let the master wash your feet. But I... I'm not going to let the master wash my feet. 
how much more spiritual I am than all of you. Lord, you going to wash my feet? No, no, not going to happen. See, this false humility that, that Peter was exhibiting because he was too good or maybe he was too bad. He was too something. He was better than all the other disciples for sure. At least that's what he thought. There was another occasion where Jesus and Peter had a pretty heated discussion or argument even, you might say. Disagreement, certainly. And you might be wondering, what? I can't believe that anybody would ever disagree with Jesus. Well, that's just the kind of thing that Peter did. He was always letting his mouth get ahead of his brain. You can read about it in the book of Matthew. It's really interesting. Chapter 16 uh, from then on, Matthew writes, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, Jesus began to tell them. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But Peter, brash, arrogant even, Peter took him aside, took the master beside took the teacher aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. You shouldn't say such things, Jesus. People are going to get the wrong idea. Heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. Ha! Maybe you know what happens next, but it, it always gets me. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. Whoa. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Get away from me, Satan. Jesus actually called Peter one of his most devoted followers. He actually referred to, Jesus, to, to Peter as the devil, capital D. Not little d, a devil, the devil, the big dog. Hmm. That's got a sting, huh? Well, Peter didn't learn his lesson, apparently, because here at what we now commonly call the Last Supper, Jesus bends down to wash the disciples' feet, and Peter protests. No, Peter protests. You'll never, ever wash my feet. And Jesus' reply is, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Uh oh uh-oh, this is not... This is not good, Peter thinks. Of course, I want to belong to you. I don't really understand what you're talking about. But if you say I got to be washed, then I'm all in. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Wash everything. Jesus replied, a person who's bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean because that's what gets dirty as you're walking everywhere and living life in the ancient Near East. Your feet get filthy. Wash your feet, you're entirely clean. After washing their feet, Jesus put on his robe again. He put that robe that he'd taken off so he could wash their feet. He put it on again and he sat down and he asked, do you understand what I was doing? Wait a minute, do you, under do you understand what I was doing? Didn't he just say he did? When he came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but you will someday. And then he goes back after he puts his robe on and, and he said, do you understand now what I was doing? Of course, they didn't. He, he knows that they didn't. But he asked the question somewhat rhetorically, do you understand what I was doing? 
Of course you don't. Here's what I was doing. You call me teacher and Lord. You call me master. And you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord, your teacher, your master, your teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. Here's the point. You ought to wash each other's feet. You servants of mine, look, I'm the master. I've given you an example. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master. And they weren't his slaves. They were his students. Nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. They were certainly his messengers. He had sent them out on many occasions to spread his message of good news, the gospel. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. I've given you an example to follow. Because I washed your feet. Nice glasses. No, oh, thanks. I have 20-20 vision. I don't really need glasses. Oh, well, I used to have perfect vision until I caught an eye disease while on the mission field. So, glasses, it's totally worth it. Um, where did you do mission work? I spent an entire week in Africa. Well, I was in Africa for an entire year. It's amazing how much you get to know Jesus when you're there for that long. Where were you in Africa? I rescue orphans from there all the time. Really? I wonder if you rescue them from the orphanages that I build there. I don't think so. Oh, you wouldn't probably know that they're mine. I don't have my name on the building or anything. I prefer to remain anonymous. <laughs> oh, well, I prefer to remain anonymous too, but when you do so much for Jesus like I do, you just can't help but be known. Listen, I have built so many hospitals and churches because I care about the body and the soul. That's nice, but I don't need a church to save souls. I just preach from the side of the mountain, like Jesus. Well, if you would come down off of that mountain, you would know what people really need, like I do. Oh, please, like you know what people need. Me and Jesus, we're tight. Look, you guys wouldn't even know Jesus if he came up to you with a sign that said, I'm Jesus. Are you kidding? I've brought more people to Jesus than Jesus. Well, he wouldn't even have a ministry if it wasn't for me. Jesus. What are you doing? Do you love me? Do you really love me? Then follow me. Now don't, don't everybody get nervous. We're not going to pull out a basin and start washing everybody's feet. That's not the point of what we're talking about this morning. Um, Jesus left an example for his disciples to follow. And it's not a literal example. It's an example of service. It's an example of serving one another. Before we get into the lessons that Peter learned from this event that transpired in John chapter 20, let me give you a little bit of backstory to the next set of verses that are in the book of First Peter. Now, the book of First Peter, once again, just like the, the Gospel of John, it's just a letter. It was written by 
Peter, the disciple who protested when Jesus washed his feet. Um, it's commonly called in your Bible probably the first epistle of Peter, and uh, it's, the word epistle just means letter. Okay, so when you see the word epistle, you can just change it to letter in your brain. So it was written by Peter, this disciple who protested in this other book written by John. It was written around AD 65, about 35 years after the foot washing that was recorded by John. So a lot of stuff happened, a lot of 35 years of life happened between this event that's recorded by John and this letter that's written by Peter. In other words, Peter had a lot of time, a lot of time to think about the lessons that he had learned from that event. And the lessons were profound. So he learned at least three points that I'm going to share with you this morning and then three principles based on those points. And time's getting away, so we're going to put it into high gear here and go. And now a word to you, this is chapter 5, and now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder, Peter's writing, and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world. All right, first of all, what's an elder? Well, elder is a word that sometimes gets used in our culture, not as much as it used to. But here, an elder refers to an older believer who knows what they don't know. And that's important because not all older people know what they don't know. They think they know everything. I've met plenty of them and so have you. That's very common among younger people, but usually with a little bit of age, people begin to learn about what they don't know. And that's who who Peter's writing to here at the beginning. A word to you elders, in other words, to you people who are leaders in the church, you know enough to know what you don't know. He writes, as a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you'll get out of it, but because you're eager to serve. You see, the point that Peter had learned and that he's trying to pass on to these older believers in the church is older believers or those who know what they don't know should serve with gladness, not with grumpiness or greed. Gladness, gladness, not with grumpiness or greed. And that's right there in those verses. I didn't make this up. Look, it says, watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, and not for what you will get out of it. Willingly, not with grumpiness or greed. Gladness, not with grumpiness or greed. And the principle here that... Uh, we need to take to heart whether we're old or young is that when I look down from wherever I am and serve, I'm really serving God. When I, because all of us have people below us, people who are younger than us, people for whom we are responsible, we teach a class, we have younger siblings, whatever. We all have people who look up to us. And so when we look down to them, not on them, not down on them, but when we look down to them and we serve them, we're really serving God. Once again, I did not make this up. It's right there in Scripture. Peter wrote, as a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you'll get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. There it is. So when I look down to serve, I'm really serving God. Point number two that Peter learned in this 35-year interim from the time that Jesus washed his feet and he wrote this letter. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And in this context, 
younger, Peter draws this age-based comparison between elder or older and younger because most younger believers just don't know what they don't know. You have two groups here that he's writing to, older people who know what they don't know, younger people who just don't know what they don't know. So they have a different set of problems. They have a different set of hang-ups. Peter gives them a different set of instructions. Younger believers, those who don't know what they don't know, because they don't know it, they should serve with faith, not with a fight. Serve with faith, not with a fight. Once again, I didn't make this up. It's right there in Scripture. First half of verse 5 says, In the same way you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. Serve with faith. Don't fight them all the time about things that need to happen or need to get done or directions that need to, you need to go as a body because they know what they're doing. They at least know enough to know what they don't know. There may be more than you. And the principle here that Peter's trying to get across to these younger believers, the principle is this. When I look up and trust, I'm really trusting God. All of us have people below us and all of us have people above us. But all authority comes from God. That's what Scripture says. So when I look up and I trust, I'm really trusting God to take care of me and meet my needs. So Peter writes to believers that are older. Peter writes to believers that are younger. And then there's a third group of people that encompasses everybody. He says, all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. The point here that Peter's trying to make to all believers, young and not so young, I'm not gonna say the O word, young and not so young, is that they should serve with humility, not with hostility. Serve with humility, not with hostility. I don't know why, but when I wrote that down, I couldn't help but thinking, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. It has nothing to do with anything, but serve with humility, not with hostility. Once again, it's right there in the verse. It says, dress yourselves, all of you, dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. You remember that scene, that scene where Jesus took off his robe so that he could wash the feet of the disciples, isn't it interesting now that Peter, the one who protested, who was there for that, who got his feet washed, now says humility is a garment that you have to put on. And we do it because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, we should humble ourselves under the mighty power of God. And if we do that, then at the right time, God will lift us up in honor. The principle the point is that all believers, young and not so young, should serve with humility and with, not with hostility. The principle is that when we all serve God, God meets all of our needs. Look, when I look down and serve, I'm really serving God. When I look up and trust, I'm really trusting God. And when all of us serve God together, then God meets all of our needs 
one of the more famous verses in the New Testament, one that perhaps many of you have memorized, you're certainly familiar with, is the very next verse in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares for you. Give all your worries and cares to God, because He cares for you. When you serve, when you look down and serve, you're serving God. When you look up and trust, you're trusting God. And all of us, when we all serve God together, God meets all of our needs. He cares for us. But all this happens because we serve and we trust together. And Peter wrote about that just the chapter before this one, too. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them to serve one another. Perhaps you've read this before. This is chapter 4, very same letter. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Then do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Christ Jesus. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. It feels like Peter could have just chopped the book off right there. That would have been a fitting ending. But then he goes on to tell us these points that we've covered this morning, these principles that he's learned in these 35 years since Jesus washed his feet. So I asked you this week, I sent out a text message and said, hey, watch your church center app. I'm going to ask you a question that I may share with everybody. I asked you, what's one simple act of kindness that you really appreciate? There are so many things that you could have responded. And I got about 30 different responses. I'm not going to run through all of them, but there were a few that I pulled out to share with you this morning, okay? So if, you're not, you're, if yours is not up here, it's not because I didn't think it was good. It's just because we don't have that kind of time. When people love my kids, Jacqueline Bailey said that. You love it when people love your kids? Boy, I do. Especially when my kids were little. Because nobody loved them more than me. And when I saw other people loving on them, that made me feel good. About when somebody allows me to merge into traffic before I get stressed and impatient. Rita sent that one in, Rita Wilson. That one's great because that one's universally applicable. I really appreciate that one too. Or, or Cheryl, as we were talking about this, she said, how about a, just a simple thank you when I let somebody else do that? That's kind of nice to see as well. I love it when somebody brings me a Dr. Pepper. Cynthia Schultz wrote that. You got that, Eric? Okay, good, good, good. Uh, I love it when somebody brings me Dr. Pepper, but you aren't the only one because Becky Morris said, when I get a Sonic drink without asking for one. Yeah, so I, think, I think that happened to her this week, so it was fresh on her mind. I really appreciate it when someone completes a task on my to-do list. My sweet husband does this for me a lot. That was Charlotte Watson. Larry, you're making me look bad, brother. I don't appreciate that. But... Your wife appreciates it, not only yours, but Cindy Tricky says, I appreciate what my husband cooks for me. You guys are setting the bar way too high. I, I, I can hang in there with people like Don, Wilson, Don Williams because Sharon said, before my husband leaves to go to work, he always gives me a kiss. That I can do, but I'm a terrible cook and I'm not great at the to-do stuff around the house, Cheryl will tell you, but I can, I can do the kissy-kissy stuff. How about receiving an unexpected note? or a card in the mail, Pam Clark, or a sincere thank you or expression of gratitude. Delenn wrote that. That's easy. Anybody can do that. Somebody who didn't want their name shared said this, someone giving me a hug and letting me know they've missed seeing me. Oh, that's sweet. 
And then Susan Thompson said, a smile. Something I really appreciate is a smile. You might be having a rough day and seeing a smile on someone's face can make you feel happy in that moment. And then this one, this last one, which came in anonymously, was probably the one that hit me the hardest. Acknowledging I exist by smiling and saying hello. Acknowledging I exist by smiling and saying hello. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. Peter wrote that we've all been given a variety of gifts, and glory is given to God when we use our gifts in His service. So what's one simple act of kindness you can show to someone else this week? When you came in the doors back there, you were all handed this list. What's your place is what's at the top of it. You don't have to take it out now, but I challenge you to take it out and look at it later. This is a simple list, a short list of needs that we have around the church right now. Things that you could jump into almost immediately, along with the names of people beside each of those items, uh, for you to contact and volunteer. What's one simple act of kindness that you could show to somebody this week? This list would be a great place to start because these are some needs that we have immediately. If you didn't get one of these lists or if it's easier for you, you can even go to faithinalar.org slash sign up right now. It just popped up this morning, was just made available. Or you can go to the Church Center app, the sign-up section of the Church Center app. You can find all those same things in there. We're going to do our best. We're going to endeavor to keep that list current and up-to-date as needs pop up and as needs fall off. We'll try to keep that list going so that you can fulfill this scriptural admonition, this command that we have from God through the Apostle Peter to serve with gladness, to put on the garment of humility and serve one another and in so doing to serve God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the way that you love us, for the grace that you showed to us by sending your son Jesus who died for us. What a gift we have been given. How could we withhold anything from you? Sometimes it's easy just to write a check Maybe it's a little bit more difficult to give of ourselves, our time. But our time, our heart, that's really what you want. That's the reason why you said anything at all about money. Because you know that where our treasure is, our heart will follow. But our treasure isn't just our money. Our treasure is our time as well and our energy. So help us to spend our time and our energy wisely especially as your word tells us as we see the day of your son's approaching, uh, your, day, your son's return approaching. We do love you. Help us to demonstrate how much we love you by serving each other, to follow your son's example and serve each other. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.